I'm joined today by Dr. Amy Abernathy. Amy is an internationally known oncologist, health data expert, and digital health leader. Most recently, she was the Principal Deputy Commissioner and Acting Chief Information Officer of the FDA. Prior to the FDA, Amy was the Chief Medical Officer and Chief Scientific Officer at Flatiron. And before that, she was a Professor of Medicine at Duke University School of Medicine. She has written over 500 publications spanning many topics, including real-world data and evidence, clinical trials, health policy, and patient-centered care. In this episode of Tuning Healthcare, Amy and I discuss how you lead and prioritize within a massive organization like the FDA, how she drove data modernization and the importance of public-private partnerships, the importance of real-world data and real-world evidence and how it will impact healthcare in the future, how you focus on your goals with the noise that surrounded the Trump administration. And if she could change one thing about healthcare, it would be to speed up the end of fee-for-service and to move to a system that aligns incentives. Join Amy and me as we tune healthcare. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such an honor for us to have you on the podcast and a real treat for our listeners to hear your perspective. Um, so welcome. It's a delight to be here with you. Thank you. Um, so before we jump into there's so many topics I feel we could cover um, on this podcast and we could probably talk for hours. Um, I know when we chatted before, I think 30 minutes went by pretty rapidly. So we could probably chat for, for a long time on so many topics that, that face the, the industry and things that, that you've dealt with in your career. But before we go there, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you end up being a physician? Um, um, tell us how you, how you got to where you, where you, where you did. Interesting. Well, so, you know, I started off thinking I was going to be a basic scientist. And when I was working in the lab building melanoma vaccines, so these were vaccines intended to stimulate the immune system, uh, and create a response against skin cancer. Yes, I liked the laboratory part, you know, the mice and everything else, but I was most fascinated when I would end up in the clinic, um, you know, giving people the vaccines on clinical trial and then also asking questions like, why did you travel all the way to, from Durham to Durham, North Carolina from Ohio to get this vaccine? And I would learn about, you know, family history, motivation around going to the granddaughter's wedding, all these aspects of like real life that health and healthcare is really all about. And so I quickly realized that I wanted to transition my time from the bench science to the clinical side and the clinical science. After becoming an oncologist, I really focused my time and energy on trying to figure out how do I take better care of the person sitting in front of me. So if you think of me as a melanoma doctor who's taking care of people with skin cancer, like how do I take better care of people with melanoma so that the care of the next person is a culmination of all of the best knowledge that came before her and her care gets reinvested into the overall system of care. And honestly, that's been the problem I've been trying to solve my entire career. So I ran the Center for Learning Healthcare at Duke where we were trying to do this from the academic side. I then went to a health tech startup, Flatiron Health, where we were trying to figure out how do we motivate Silicon Valley thinking and venture capital to try and solve this problem, um, including the organization of cancer data. And then ultimately I went to FDA 
course, trying to think about how do we help make sure that the regulatory apparatus is ready to scale as we have more and more treatments coming down the pipeline. And I just left the FDA about a month ago after serving as a couple for a couple of years as the principal deputy commissioner and the acting chief information officer really focused on making sure that the regulatory apparatus is ready to go along with the rapid advances we have on the discovery side and the possibilities as it goes back to this kind of core question of taking better care of the person sitting in front of me. Right, it's, and it's fascinating. And as you've clearly gone through your career, the impact that you um, can and have on, on people has, has obviously clearly grown. Tell us a little bit about the transition from academia to, um, you know, to uh, health tech startup, and then from the private sector to government. Oh, holy cow, right? So three massively different careers, huh? Um, you know, I think it's easier to make those really different um, career moves when you have a raison d'etre, right? Like you, you're trying to solve one basic problem. And the question is, how do you bring the best of what's possible in a particular career setting um, to solving that problem? And, and so I, I would say that uh, I... It may seem like, you know, I've had three really, really different careers and I'm about to do another, another one. So next chapter coming. But the reality is that I have been constantly trying to figure out how do I make sure that I'm bringing my best self as a physician, a physician scientist, a leader, a health tech person to this particular place where I'm working. And what I have found is that that kind of focus on vision whether it is at a health tech company, standing up in front of the company and sort of saying, here's the North Star of what we're trying to do, or being at FDA and have, having 18,000 people need to transition to teleworking overnight because of the pandemic, being able to have each of those organizations sort of understand the why and then doing my best to bring my part of solving for that why within the context of those organizations has been how I get my job done. I would also say that what's been interesting having had all these different jobs is that you know, it allows for what I would call intersectional thinking, the ability to see what's possible by knowing health tech and knowing government and understanding how things get done on a governmental and policy um, frame, now sort of thinking about like, what's that intersection look like and how are we gonna do it differently in the future? And I, I think that's been one of the great values uh, of doing all these different careers. Yeah, so I couldn't agree with you more. I think often we often um, uh, make the mistake of trying to find people that have had exactly the same experience to put them in the next role. And, and that doesn't, we don't benefit from that. We benefit from people who bring different, different experiences and, and that ultimately makes us think differently and, and drives innovation and change. So let's delve a little bit into intersectional thinking because that, actually that's... Um, a lot about how Lumeris was created. We we wrote a white paper a decade or so ago, more than that now, on what does it mean to be a collaborative pair and really create that intersection of pair and provider, that true collaboration. And so as you think about um, you know, what you've um, achieved at the FDA, um, how would you, what would you say came from um, you pulled the most from, from your sort of previous experiences that sort of framed how you approach that role? 
Interesting. Well, so first I might highlight why when I was at FDA, I also took on the role of CIO. So, uh, you know, I, I as if, joined as FDA. If you needed more work to do, as if the FDA <laughs> commission wasn't enough. Right. <laughs> like just in case I needed more work. Um, you know, what happened was, uh, you know, when I thought about going to FDA and I enumerated the things that I was going to make my priorities to work on. I said three things, um, patient centricity, real world data and real world evidence and accelerating clinical evidence generation. Like those are the three things I thought I um, could focus my time and energy on and that would ultimately lead to an overarching goal which was around improving precision healthcare. However, I get to FDA and I was like, oh, wait a second. So if FDA is going to work with real world data and real world evidence, they're gonna to have to have a way of ingesting data and analyzing it. Um, and also, holy cow, if we have more and more precision medicines and more and more personalization based on understanding what real people want, there's gonna be more drugs to be evaluated by regulators and more work to do. And so we need the FDA to be ready to scale along with all of these new capabilities. And so that's the reason I took on the role as CIO and sort of advanced um, the data and tech modernization at the FDA. Now go back to your question, which was about intersectional thinking. Uh, you know, first of all, I think that the opportunities learned in my prior roles, whether that was like, how do you use data and technology to, and, and product mindset to think about building scalable solutions, right? Like that was one of the things that I had learned. Another one with my Duke role was how do I line up clinical trials and observational research and how do I leverage data in new ways? And so I was able to kind of bring those to what I was seeing at FDA and quickly be able to pinpoint a problem that I thought was indeed a problem to solve. So that was like one part of the intersectional thinking. And the other part was something completely different which is that I had learned at my prior roles that in order to solve hard problems, especially at the interface between science and software and an analysis and analytics and modern thinking, you actually have to have new ways of getting all of those um, diverse and usually non-intersecting disciplines to learn how to work together and talk to each other. And so you need to, figure out how do you create equal in equalized power structures so that everybody can sit at the same table and listen to each other. You have to figure out what's lingua franca, like what's the common language that allows everybody to talk in the same frame. And so I think that what I had learned in my prior roles that then showed up at FDA was not only, you know, kind of questions as it related to data and tech, but actually also questions as it related to helping all of the different disciplines work together in an even and um, uh, a collaborative way, as well as talk to each other in a way that everybody could not only listen, but also understand. Yeah, let's take a step back for a second because everybody knows the FDA, right? But I, uh, and it's got such a massive role in, in protecting public health. Um, but I'm not sure everyone always appreciates the, the true scale of, of the responsibilities of the FDA. So take a moment, like just 
frame for us the the gamut of those responsibilities um, that that you were thinking about, you know, almost every day for for the time you were there. So FDA is a science-based public health agency. The responsibility of FDA is to protect and promote public health and also to promote innovation, which I think is an important part of FDA's remit. And when you think about this, um, FDA's remit is massive as you just described, but in ways sometimes people don't realize. So first of all, FDA regulates probably between 20 and 25% of the world's economy, right? Because as sort of the world leader on the regulatory stage, um, that also is not just US, but it's actually world economic implications. And this is not just food and drugs, but also animal products, cosmetics, dietary supplements, tobacco, medical devices. And you get my point, like the number of different product types or product categories, the different regulatory requirements that sort of impact each of these and how you make sure that any particular product meets the accepted regulatory standard for that product and now can get into the hands of people writ large is the responsibility of the regulatory agency. A regulatory agency that is too conservative and too scared um, means that innovation doesn't happen. And a regulatory agency that's too porous um, and too easygoing means um, that we have um, potential catastrophes. And so getting that right is particularly important. So, and funny you should say about the breadth because I moved locations in my home between my last call and this call. And as I was walking downstairs, I was trying to think of like everything in my home that is regulated by the FDA. And it's like, it's, it's probably more than 25% of what's in my house. That's for sure. It might be 25% of the world economy, but it's more than 25% of what's in my house is probably regulated by the FDA. It's mind boggling. Um, really is crazy. <laughs> and, and I don't have some of the things you, you regulate in here, that's for sure. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, so tell us a little bit about um, how, when you have such a broad remit, right, how do you prioritize? Uh, one of the mantras that, that we always operate by is that if everything's equally important, everything's equally unimportant. Right? And we sort of to drive people to prioritize, because if you if you have, you know, 10 things on your list, you obviously had way more than 10. Right. Um, and, and everything's equally important, then then, you know, you're basically not saying anything is is more important. So how do you prioritize when you have such a massive thing that would be sort of one? And then the other aspect of it, then how do you hit that balance? Right. Which is which is so hard because, you know, the conservative person's going to say, I, I don't want to cause damage. Right, but the innovator is saying I need to push the ball forward, which is which is clearly, you know, an amazing part of your mindset. Right, is I need to innovate and push the ball forward. And so, how do you balance those all those things and and come up with a list of priorities? So, um, I'm going to first go with the how you prioritize. And as you were asking the question, I, honestly, Nigel, I was like, prioritize what? So, um, you know, there is. How do you prioritize what to learn when the remit is so large and you know there's like 20 plus books with the regulation in them you can't possibly know all of that right so you got to figure out like what are you going to prioritize to learn it or how are you going to learn it there's like what do you prioritize to do so if i'm going to have some priority activities 
that I'm going to try and move the needle on differently over a, a defined period of time. Like, how am I going to decide what's important? And then also, what are you going to prioritize to motivate? So, you know, there's 18,000 plus people at FDA. How do I, you know, kind of prioritization, prioritize the motivation across that? That was what I was, first thing I try to figure out, like when you're asking the prioritization question. And, you know, let me just hit on those three things. So with respect to prioritization on like, how do you prioritize to learn? Like I could possibly learn all the regulations. Uh, you know, I find oftentimes that- Oh, I'm sure you could, if given enough time. I reckon- <laughs> Maybe given enough good. time. <laughs> but I always find people are like asking me to rattle off some regulatory, you know, thing with some number, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'll Google it and figure it out. Um, and, you know, when I, instead what I found I needed to do was prioritize frameworks. Like what would be the approach regulators would take to this particular problem and what would be kind of the overarching framework. So a risk-based framework, for example, and understanding that um, if uh, we are going to put um, FDA resources um, towards it, there's a couple of different ways we can apply resources. So like what's, what's the sort of set of resources that we've got and the framework for wit within which we're going to do that. And then outside of that, an understanding of how do I quickly find the details for any particular scenario as I need them. And, you know, it was interesting. One of the things I was responsible for was advancing FDA's work as it related to CBD, cannabidiol. Um, and, you know, this was a situation where um, figuring out how FDA was going to um, regulate in this sort of rapidly advancing space, I, you know, kind of got brought into this and I, you know, the number of product categories that CBD is relevant to is massive, right? Like, you know, CBD and, and, to, and, and products that think of themselves as dietary supplements, um, CBD and food, CBD in, as a medical drug, right? So like, all, we even see CBD in devices. And so now starting to understand how a particular product shows up in these different categories, help me think. And then thinking about like, what are the things in FDA's toolbox? Like, um, the regulatory decision-making, deciding when something can go on the market. So regulatory um, you know, decisions in that category versus enforcement and when you're taking things off of the market. And so like thinking about that. So framework, what are the things in the toolbox that the FDA has to apply? And then how am I gonna quickly find the detailed information when I need it to understand, for example, what does a dietary supplement really mean? And what are the rules as it relates to dietary supplements? So that's kind of the first thing around prioritization was I had to come up with a schematic and that was my schematic at least. That makes sense so far? Yeah, makes sense. The second thing you asked was about prioritization was like, what am I gonna spend my time on? And that I think comes back to raison d'etre, right? Like, you know, I'm gonna choose how to focus my time on things where I think that I can move the needle but line up with my big why, right? Going back to how do I take better care of the person sitting in front of me in the clinic? And so I you know, looked across FDA and there's a ton of different things that are important to work on, right? So um, mother and infant nutrition is an example of something that I thought was really, really important to work on. Important, but when I thought about you know, making big impact on what I thought I could do best within the context of my raison d'etre, probably didn't line up perfectly if that makes sense. And so what I tried to do was say, you know, here are the things that I think I can do and bring to the table that are gonna move the needle on those things that are most aligned with my big why. 
Um, and that's how I ended up working on data and tech modernization, evidence generation, real world data, precision medicine and precision healthcare. Like that's kind of like how I did that. And then what I did in, in those categories. And then the last part is, you know, prioritization as to how you mo motivate other people. So your big why, you know, or my big why, like, you know, that's going to be where at night and on weekends, I'm spending my extra time, but also there's, you know, others across the organization that are going to want to put their energies into important areas. And so I sort of thought a lot about how do you motivate others to, to you know, sort of work in line with their big why. And so and like, you know, that's where, for example, the, um, maternal and infant nutrition comes in. Like, I'm going to do what I can how to help many people um, see this as an important the, problem the that because others the then figure out where does that um, fit in their raison d'etre and start to move that, the needle on that one. And, and the thing so that, I, that gives the opportunity that is, for me to distinguish my time as part of this and the work that I'm putting forward as now other things that I think are important the first 10 people are close enough to the founder so they understand so right the mission and they're driven and they join because of that mission and how do you how do you drive that to the next 10 and the next 10 and the next 10 so everybody comes to work with that founder's mentality i think in effect you've just shared how to do that at a government agency which is which is like truly mind-boggling right because to do that in a company that that you know at least from my mind seems easier than how to do it in a government agency and i think you've perhaps shared you know perhaps a, a really fundamental uh, leadership lesson so thanks for that um thank you um let's delve a little bit into some of those um areas you focused on um so let's start with um data and tech because it was something that was obviously passionate um, you were passionate about before you came to the FDA, as you said, it was one of those those driving things. You started initiatives before the pandemic. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, how you've um, you know innovated around data and and tech and the initiatives you've driven um, you know during your time. Uh, absolutely. So you know, first of all, uh, for full disclosure, um, I am a data person. So I would say that kind of you know. If we think about 10x skills or you know 10x attributes, like data would be my 10x attribute. And I am not a software engineer or a software person. I, you know, I had my first job when I was um, 16 at NASA and really sort of in, in programming. Um, and thought I was going to become a computer scientist before I thought I was going to become a basic scientist. And um, that all is only relevant to say that I am in intrigued by the possible and celebrate engineering and software design, but I really, this is not my, my core thing that I understand or know. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've always believed that if we're really gonna move the needle with respect to um, continuously leading the edge of learning so we take better care of people, we're absolutely gonna have to leverage data and software and novel analytics and um, the ability to do things in near real time. And, and so that was like the backdrop. Um, when I got to FDA, as I mentioned, I could see that we were gonna need to leverage data and technology differently in order to help the FDA scale and help the FDA be ready to ingest data differently. And the other thing that I could see, and I think this is really important is that the way that the FDA uses data, not only ingests it, 
what makes sense of it, puts it to work, also influences how all the industries regulated by FDA use data. So if I could start to change the way that FDA thinks about what's possible with data, what does good look like, then I could see how that would have an important ripple on um, effect. The other thing is that, um, you know, I, I was involved in high tech. I have been involved in a number of large scale data and tech initiatives in healthcare across time. And I think that many of them have been hamstrung by what I call vendor think, which is we're healthcare and we know what's needed. And so we're gonna write a number of specifications then hand them over the fence to the data and tech industry so that they can build to our specifications. Um, and you know, I'm not calling this um, waterfall versus agile design. It's actually more about envisioning the future and how you know how it ultimately gets built. Um, ideally, gets built in an agile way. But what I really mean is that what's historically happened in healthcare is healthcare envisions the future and then hands that vision over to tech, and as a result the possible is often missing, missing from, the visual, from the vision. And so the other thing that I felt was really important was that we find new ways of bringing software expertise and tech and regulatory and healthcare expertise together so that we could envision the future together and now think about building towards that possible. And that ultimately led to both our data and technical modernization action plans at FDA, which really were about how do we build the right technical foundation? How do we have the right people? What's the right budgeting and governance models? And then what are we gonna do to showcase what it looks like when we build technology in the right way, when we put data to work, when we have conversations that are collaborative with the data and tech industry to envision a different future and then start to move our way in that direction. Yeah, it's incredible because, I mean, I just know trying to get things done in, in private companies is, is, is often difficult. Trying to implement these changes in a government agency must be, must be uh, you know, a monumental feat. And so um, when you focused on, on these initiatives, um, um, did you, how do you set goals, right? How do you set goals that are achievable? In a in a sort of a uh, a public government environment uh, because people obviously aren't bonus. It's not like a, a private company where we hit these goals. You're going to get a bonus, and so everyone's then driven to 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 go the extra mile. How how do you set how do you set goals in um, to sort of achieve some of your the things you wanted to achieve around? Let's stay focused on on sort of the the data modernization. This is an interesting question. So it was actually worse than you just described because not only was there like no financial incentives if you win, um, there were public health incentives. And that's really important, by the way. You know, people who work at FDA are incredibly motivated by the public health mission. So that actually helps, but, but there's no financial incentives that you can build against. And worse, um, the budgeting cycles are, you know, 18 to 24 months out. Try, you know, setting goals when you actually can't, ask for new budget and know you're gonna get it for two years, right? And I was only there for a little over two years. So in, in order to get there, um, I needed to convince both the agency writ large, as well as the data and technical organization of what was possible and then move from that direction. So, um, you know, a lot of like 
how we got there and how we set goals um, is fairly tactical, but um, I think is really fundamental. So the first thing that I tried to do was um, set up a list of expected objectives. And those objectives included um, focus on our people, right? And make sure that the people who already work, especially in the data and technical organizations, know that they're important and that we find new ways to bring their voice to the table. And that was really important because what I found was that um, our, 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 our hierarchical organization not only was, um, you know, creating sort of a fairly downtrodden culture, but also that there was no way of finding um, dollars available or taking waste out of the system because there was nobody to speak up to say we might do X differently. And so focused on pe focus on people also then allowed us to identify untapped budget. Um, so the second thing then was we um, put in place a budgetary initiative that we called Project Blue Sky, where we identified 10% of our overall budget. In this case, you know, our overall budget was $325 million. So we identified 10% that we were gonna redeploy. But this time the commitment was, we're gonna redeploy it on ourselves to make sure that we can do our job better. And then that went to the third part, which was in doing our job better, we set a series of operational excellence goals so that we could see if we helped our people have more of a voice, if we redeployed our own dollars in a way that allows us to do our job to get better, then we could actually see what progress looks like on, on a, you know, against a set of you know, true operational roadmaps. What's interesting is that sort of basic strategy led to two things. First of all, for once, people felt like there was a real commitment to them that then allowed everybody to stand taller, have more voice, and then actually do their work better in a way that then the whole agency took notice. You know, the year before there had been no way we would have been able to take 18,000 people to um, full teleworking in 24 hours. And yet we did it seamlessly and in a way that the whole agency celebrated. And so again, with no new budget and um, you know, that kind of ability then allowed the next thing, which was now we could ask for new governance models for the whole agency that said, you know, we need to make sure that the data and tech organization has a voice at the highest levels of the agency. So the CIO needs to report to the principal deputy commissioner, the commissioner. It was easy because I happened to be the principal deputy commissioner. So I was able to act in that way until we made that happen, but we were only able to truly action it because of the fact that we'd showcased what was possible by getting people to work in new ways. And then that allowed us to now set a new set of roadmaps and go to Congress and say, okay, here's the new money that we need. And um, it's interesting to me looking back how basic it sounds and how truly revolutionary it was in getting things done, especially in a world where um, almost always the only way to get things done is to ask for new budget authority. And, um, you know, that comes with all the political challenges that go along with getting new budgetary authority. Yeah, so, so touching on sort of political challenges, um, you know, when you delve into what has been achieved, like at the FDA, at CMS, HHS in general, right, um, um, you know, some amazing things were done during the administration, um, but obviously there's always a lot of noise going on as well, um, just by the nature of the administration. Did you, you just focus on your job and the noise was just 
off to the side. How did the 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 whole sort of aura that went around the administration impact you on from a sort of day to day perspective? How could you just focus on your job and ignore it and look at your toes with all that noise going on? Um, so the answer is no. Um, but at the same time, how do I lead? And I was the highest career civil servant at FDA. Like, how do I lead an extraordinary group of 18,000 plus career civil servants, scientists and physicians and um, experts of all kinds that clearly can't miss the fact that the president is tweeting at us, right? Uh, and so, you know, I, I thought a lot about this, honestly. And, you know, the first is that one of the things that I learned at the agency and, and Jeff Sharon, who is the director of the Devices Center, CDRH, was really the person who taught me this, is that um, the agency leadership, you know, a, a part of our responsibility is to act as the insulation, the sponge in between the political noise and the rest of the agency, so the agency can really focus on getting the core work done. So that was sort of one thing um, that was really important is to acknowledge that our job was to actually act as that cushion. And you know, um, sometimes that means you take a bit more of um, the hit, but you know, that's kind of the way it works. The second thing is like, at least from my perspective, it was nonsense to act like it wasn't going on. People are human beings and they read it in the newspaper and their grandmother calls and asks about it. And by the way, like it's the conversation at the dinner table. So if you act like it didn't exist, um, you're actually not giving enough respect to the people with it, for whom you're responsible. And so, you know, try to address it head on um, in a variety of ways, but through, um, you know, a variety of town halls and team meetings and helping some supervisors understand what to say. That was hard because practically speaking, you have in government, you have a lot of rules of what, what you are and you're not allowed to talk about, especially, um, you know, in the prior administration. And so, you know, I think that we had to come up, equip ourselves with ways of having a safe conversation. But the ways that you can have a safe conversation is to say like, you know, let's not put our head in the sand, let's acknowledge that things are hard, but in a time of a public health emergency, this is our responsibility, public health, and like really focus on the, 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 the what's important. The last thing I would say, and this was really important um, to me personally, and this is not about the politics, you know, FDA doubled our workload. Um, you know, we had a, a kind of core fundamental responsibility in the middle of the pandemic. But we're like, as I said before, we're human beings, right? Like, and the things that are hard and have hit the mental health of every American hits the mental health of the agency as well. And so we very quickly um, put in place, uh, you know, the, the kinds of like simple things like, you know, focus on your family, making sure you get an ex enough exercise. So here's what, you know, mental health and counseling opportunities look like. We actually needed to like surface, how do we talk about this? How do we help supervisors know how to have safe conversations with employees? Um, because we are all in this together and um, burnout is a challenge. And, you know, the sense of um, sometimes feeling, uh, you know, that, that the world is against you in the middle of all those politics is a challenge, et cetera. And so finding ways to acknowledge that it's hard and give people the 
equipment and tools that they need to solve through it, I think was equally as important. Yeah, very powerful. Um, so let's, um, I'd love to spend a, a few minutes on real world data. I think it's a, a fascinating topic um, that's really, um, you know, through the pandemic, I think come much more to the forefront of, of people's, um, uh, you know, minds. Because prior to that, I think it was definitely a topic, but really focused on those people like yourself who are, who are scientists and, and just sort of thinking about how do I match real world data with sort of either clinical trial or evidence or whatever else we have. And, and I think the pandemic brought that to the forefront because you saw, um, you know, treatments coming quickly and saying, well, that treatment's only been tested on, on these people, but how can I pull real world data and, and, and apply it to other people? Or the, obviously the, we forever have only had vaccine trials on a subset of the population, but but because the vaccine was so much more in the public forefront, everyone was now focused on, well, who, well, who were the 20,000 people that, were, that had the vaccine trial? And, and how does that work? Clearly, you're not going to ever cover everybody who has every potential um, you know, comorbidity or whatever else in, in, a, in, a, in a clinical trial. So tell us a little bit about your perspective on real world data. Um, where do you see it going? Um, and, and how do you um, sort of involve the mindset of people that are sort of what I would call for want of a better word traditionalists who believe you know this is what we've this is what we've observed and therefore we can only we can only do what we've observed so let me kind of step back for a second and just do a couple of definitional things to make sure that we're all on the same page that this landscape of rural data and rural evidence, um, you know, we, we used to call it outcomes research or comparative effectiveness research. And then it went through a resurgence as patient-centered outcomes research. Um, so now these days we call it rural data and rural evidence, but it's really a expansion on the conceptual model of, you know, data generated outside of the traditional clinical trial setting. Now, sometimes it's prospective. So for example, a prospective registry or a pragmatic clinical trial, a lot of times in 2021 and beyond, we're also talking about data that's passively collected through a variety of different means. Electronic health record data, administrative claims data, the accelerometer in your watch. Like these are all different types of robo data sets. These days you can also check Reddit and Twitter. Like these are you know, new types of robo data. And so, and the question becomes, how do we make sense of it in a way that provides adequate and compelling information that can be used to make a specific decision or provide specific observations or characterization? And if that decision is a regulatory decision, then we sort of ask this question, how might we use robo data and robo evidence for regulatory decision-making? Um, certainly 21st century cures as a landmark piece of legislation has uh, included the expectation that the FDA will provide guidance on how FDA might consider using real-world data and real-world evidence, and specifically in two use cases. Um, expansion of a label, uh, so for example, um, a new indication for a drug that's already approved, or post-marketing commitment or post-marketing requirements. So looking, for example, at safety evaluation of a drug after it's been um, Put on market, and I think that you know, in the FDA context, actually, really the the, the core maturation of real world data and real world evidence has happened largely in the device context, where the evaluation of devices such as continuous glucose monitors can happen through real world data that 
allows you to understand how these devices perform across time. Well, whew, I can tell you that the real world data real evidence base like was already hot and heavy and people are you know arguing um, whether or not this was an appropriate direction to go and you know should real world data real evidence have an equal stature to a traditional clinical trial or what might that look like and i would argue that up until the pandemic the book of thinking was largely what i call replacement product for clinical trial thinking like how how can real world data real world evidence serve as a replacement product for clinical trials so that clinical evidence generation can be faster or um, less expensive or not have to randomize patients, all these things. I think we learned a ton about what was real and what wasn't in um, COVID. So first of all, you highlighted vaccines. And we've certainly seen from the Israeli data as an example that rural data and rural evidence can um, help us understand medical products in context and give us an understanding of effectiveness at a population scale once products have been approved or authorized. And so I think that's like really where this goes. And, and, and the vaccine example from Israel, you know, and, and even some of the work done in the United States really is like, oh, that's, this is what it should look like. There's a ton of other things that we learned um, in COVID. So one of the things that we learned in COVID is to expand our thinking about data. So you notice that I keep calling it real world data and real world evidence, like the data is the important part here, not the evidence. And so really sort of thinking largely about how do we think about data sets of many different types? How do we think about linking them together? What happens when you put genomic information together with the EHR data, blah, blah, blah. And so I think there's been a huge expansion of our understanding of how, how data sets can be put together in new ways, but also the kind of critical issues such as data curation, data characterization, data cleaning, all these things. That actually brings me to the next thing I think we learned in spades during the pandemic, which is that there's a lot of people talking about it, but not that many people who really know how to do this um, in, in um, the best ways. And we've saw we've seen a number of shenanigans during the pandemic, whether this was the Surgisphere episodes where these two papers had to be redacted from the New England Journal and the Lancet, or just a ton of investigators who published some paper from their health systems uh, electronic data warehouse and called that you know now the answer to um, every question anybody ever wanted to answer. And, and so that sort of then highlights, I think, the next thing that we really learned in COVID is that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the real world data and real world evidence space. To, and there's like just a ton of methods work still to be done. And that methods work isn't gonna stop because the data sets are probably gonna keep getting more sophisticated and complex and the methods are gonna to need to keep going. The last thing I would say is that we learned a lot about the possible though. And so um, one thing we learned on the, in the context of the possible is that I think we're gonna move away from calling it real world data to just data, right? Like, by the way, we can use data often from real world sources to better manage supply chains and real world performance of diagnostic tests and figuring out how to move ventilators around the country and figuring out you know, what are the contours of the pandemic and what's the risk of developing long COVID syndrome and all these other things. And that if we're going to have all these new ways of using data, huh, the regulators need to learn how to use it too. So there's this thing I call regulatory muscle, which is like having regulators, just like the rest of us understand the possible so that there is the ability to discriminate what does good look like. And that goes back to my 
sort of core point around data and tech modernization at the agency, which is that the more that the regulators can put data to work at the agency in new ways and teach all the industries regulated by FDA to use data in new ways, we're gonna to start to see this proliferate um, across. That's great, thank you. We could probably carry on talking for, for a while uh, and we'd like to end with uh, what we call the quick fire round. But before, before I ask that, I have to ask one other thing, right? You threw in there earlier that you worked at NASA at 16. I think at 16, I, I only knew where my next soccer game was coming. Uh, <laughs> like, how does someone end up at NASA at 16? Um, so I had, at 14 and 15, I had uh, gone to the talent identification program at Duke. This was when it had first started. It was like the first and second year. And I started computer science and, and uh, biology. And then I had this opportunity to go to NASA um, for the summer. Anyway, long story short is I really wanted to study green sea turtles. And so I was gonna go to Cape Canaveral and study green sea turtles, but they didn't need anybody to do green sea turtles. And they're like, you know, you're actually are pretty proficient with programming. We have this need in the AI lab, artificial intelligence. Um, and interestingly, I was responsible for programming this robot to do this experiment at Kennedy Space Center. And my first publication was when I was 16, um, about programming this robot in the artificial intelligence lab at uh, Kennedy Space Center. So there you go. Totally wow. um, amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's incredible. So we, like, we do like to end with what we call the quick fire round. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you were ever given? Best key piece of advice I've ever given was one of my mentors who told me, you need to enumerate the three, you can only have two to three principles that are gonna guide your life. And then every time you have a tough decision, go back to your core principles and decide, you know, what do your core principles tell you about how to navigate that decision? And I have literally used that at every single tough juncture. That's good advice. Um, what do you do to relax or have fun when you're not changing the U.S. healthcare landscape? I love to exercise and just kind of be outside. So I, you probably guessed, grew up in Florida. I am definitely into the heat. So I will be outside all day long and uh, find different ways to walk around, et cetera. Um, if you were starting your career again now, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, wow. Um, I, I think that the advice I give to my younger self is the advice I wish I'd had, but I ended up ultimately taking, which is, don't just assume that you need to follow the path everybody else has taken, follow the path that is aligned with your passion. And then finally, if you could change one thing, I know that's a hard one, one thing about healthcare, <laughs> um, what would it be? I would probably change the incentives of the payments in healthcare delivery. I, I, I think that unfortunately, the fee-for-service pay payment systems um, unfortunately drive a lot of uh, bad decisions. Yeah, we obviously couldn't agree more because that's the mission that we uh, get up every day to follow. Amy, it's been an absolute delight. We, we could probably chat for hours and there's so many other topics that we could have hit on that we didn't, but uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for what you've already given um to to the country um i can't wait to hear 
what the next episode is. I have no doubt that you'll continue to make a, a massive impact that improves healthcare, not just for the people that you serve, but for all of us. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you for joining us today. Please follow us on your favorite streamer and don't forget to rate us as it helps others find our podcast. I hope you continue to stay healthy and please join us next time as we tune healthcare. This is Nigel Orenstein in New York.